everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dalpena, and on today's episode, we have part two of the Don Lockerbie Trilogy, the first episode of the interview with the former USA Cricket Association CEO. He talked about his time at North Carolina as an All-American middle distance runner, and then later the head track and field coach in North Carolina, and all the illustrious personalities he came across which also contributed to his start in a career in sports venue and stadium design consulting. And that put him on the path to cricket in a manner of sorts because it was his stadium design and venue design consulting skills that were required to help build and renovate a lot of stadiums for the 2007 Cricket World Cup. And that's where we left off, the conclusion of the 2007 World Cup. So this week's episode will begin his journey into USA Cricket, his segue from the end of that event into becoming the CEO of the USA Cricket Association in 2009, and his initiation into U.S. cricket culture, which was unique, to say the least. So today is part two, and I want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, presented by Dream Cricket, is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, located at 5515 McKeever Road in Pearland. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. And now, part two of the Don Lockerbie Trilogy. You said that you hadn't slept for two years leading leading into the 2007 world cup and you said you limped across the finish line with what happened in the final and and the whole lights fiasco but you got across the finish line absolutely now the, the tournament ends you got a chance to finally breathe and relax and kind of take stock of things and kind of out in the distance five years away is 2012 london olympics which was another project of yours you were working on getting back into the Olympic stuff. I don't think cricket was necessarily at the front of your expected plans, but things happened differently. As we know, you wound up working your way into the chief executive role for USACA in, in 2009, but there was a two-year period in the interim there. And I know you may have had some interactions with Alan Stanford. As the cliche goes, when, when you know, you're overseas and you meet somebody, oh, well, you're an American and he's an American, so you must know each other. We used to joke arrogantly and ignorantly, I'll say, that we were the two Americans in cricket, really having no clue what the United States was actually doing in cricket or the history of the United States. I guess I knew a little bit more than I'm leading on. But yeah, 2007 ends. And just to say that the first thing I did was just go down to the beach that I lived on or near in in Barbados and tried to sleep for a week or two. You know, it was just relaxing. But those of us who understand the event world realize that that final wicket closing ceremonies in my story about Team Australia didn't mean that the World Cup was over for me. I worked from that May date until the following March of 2008 when the board of the World Cup effectively ended its operation because there's just so much you have to do. Uh, You distribute money. You deal with cleaning up any messes that took place in various countries. There might have been a lawsuit or two that looked like it was going to happen over anything. You had vendors who had done well and maybe not done so well, and so you were negotiating their final payment structures. Uh, It happens in every Olympic Games. It happens in every FIFA World Cup. And so, you know, some of us are always the last 
to leave. And so I really got to enjoy living in Barbados with less pressure and stayed there until I think it was January or February of 2008. But again, the board closed down shop, I think around March of 2008. So in the meanwhile, you don't just lie on the beach. I'm not that kind of guy. So I immediately uh, put my company back on the block and said, all right, I'm back in business and was retained on two good projects. One was renovating BC Place, the Canadian Football League in Vancouver, which also now hosts Vancouver Whitecaps of MLS. And then I was brought in some early days working on the London Olympics. And so the Barbados airport to Vancouver or to London was good for a while, but then became a little bit of a strain. And then I realized my days were numbered in the Caribbean. And so I made my way to uh, Miami Beach. But in reality, the ICC was also kind of dangling a carrot or two. There was, would I be interested in working in India for the next World Cup? Would I be interested in joining the ICC, moving to Dubai? Those were some discussions and opportunities that I could look at. But I was very excited about the London Olympics. And I had enjoyed my six and a half years in cricket. It was all I did. I was so busy with the Cricket World Cup, I wasn't able to consult on anything else. And, and really, I wasn't sure that the move to Dubai or working in India was in my best interest. I thought maybe it was time to get back to the Olympic side of things. So London was my next kind of port of call and was enjoying working that. And when I basically, you know, turned down any opportunity to, to seriously consider India or Dubai with the ICC, they then started asking me if I would be interested in the CEO position at USA Cricket. And my original statement was emphatically, no, I didn't think that was the next thing I wanted to do. Really, so far, 2008, I was just kind of working in London, working in Vancouver, living in Barbados until I moved to Miami, and then hearing some whispering about, we really need somebody with your uh, background, and we'd like an American. So I, I just kept my ear to the ground about the CEO position. I think I turned it down officially twice, was happy doing what I was doing. And then, you know, they came back and said, look, we're going to support, you know, the United States in a, in a big way. We, we have the United States on our radar as a growth project. I think they mentioned China as the other country and the two big powerhouses in world sport. There was this discussion that they thought the Olympic Games and the T20 game would make its way to the Olympics. That interested me. And when I really thought about it, I said, well, look, I think this is the right number. Back in those days, there was 32 sports in the Summer Olympic Games. If cricket was going to be one of them, then I was saying to myself, I could be one of the 33 CEOs in world sport that would be the head of a United States Federation. And that in itself would put me knee deep into the U.S. Olympic movement as opposed to going around the rest of the world, uh, working on stadiums for other Olympic cities, this was exciting to me. So based on kind of the, not promise, but prediction that T20 cricket had a good shot at being an Olympic sport, I then told them, okay, I'm sure there's an RFP or a search firm doing work for the CEO. I don't have any interest in going through a long-winded search and sitting around and waiting for months. When you guys are down to the last three or four people and you want to add me to it automatically, then I will compete for the job as one of the finalists. And then, you know, I would expect a decision after that inside a month. Otherwise, I need to keep figuring out my future. 
that was 2008 late and uh, early 2009, they tell me, uh, indeed, there are three or four finalists for the project of CEO and they would like me to consider it. And I said, all right, but I want to know what the ICC is going to do because my own little research was that U.S. cricket was suspended. There was no real activity going on. And I was told, well, there had been a new board voted in and there had been a new constitution accepted. And the final ticket that had to be punched for U.S. cricket to get out of suspension was for them to have a CEO. I didn't realize at the time that nobody in the United States was was a paid employee of U.S. cricket. There was no office. There was a board. And there was a board of, uh, I don't know, eight or nine, maybe 10 or 11 board members from all over the country in all the various regions, I think eight regions and some extras and a chairman. And so I began to at least look into it. But I said, you know, ICC, what are you going to do here? Well, there will be a reasonably good uh, salary and we're going to help with that. And then, you know, travel expenses for the U.S. team and development of the U.S. team. And Don, you, you put a plan together and we'll support it. And that was kind of the ICC promise from people I knew well and had worked with. So in the end, I said, all right, let me go and be one of the four finalists. And if I'm right, uh, I flew up to Kennedy Airport and went to a nearby hotel and interviewed and actually made a proposal and presentation. I showed them what I would do if I was CEO, what my background experience was, but what was the plan? What was my one-year, three-year, five-year plan for U.S. cricket? A little bit in the dark, but I had spoken to a lot of ICC people by then. But I'm meeting U.S. cricket people actually for the second time, second or third time. I should be fair to say that in 2004, when the U.S., when we put out the uh, opportunity for countries to bid for the Cricket World Cup, Fort Lauderdale and U.S. cricket did propose themselves as a venue. And so they came and appeared in um, St. Lucia, where we hosted a big event with all the countries who were proposing themselves as countries. So I met several board members back then, and even the design team who was going to design the Fort Lauderdale facility. Then, because they continued to want to be active after that that seminar, the two or three day seminar in St. Lucia, where we basically tried to scare every country to say, look, this is what you're going to have to do or don't bother bidding. The United States stayed in the bid. So that meant we had to bring an an observation team to tour everything that they were going to do in Fort Lauderdale. And they did a very good job of, of, of hosting and showing their plan. So they stayed in the bid. And in the end, they weren't selected. And I think partially because enough West Indian countries stayed in the game that the West Indies cricket wasn't all that excited about Bermuda or the United States getting matches, which you can kind of understand, even though I will tell you Bermuda absolutely deserved to be in the in the mix. They had done an amazing job, but were left out. So I had met a few of those people back in 2005, but not since. So now it's 2009. I make the interview and Strangely enough, I am offered the job. So that happened to be mid to late March. And when I accepted the job, when I felt like the ICC was giving me enough to take the job, I proposed two things. One, when's the next board meeting? Well, apparently there hadn't been one for a year or a year and a half. So they said that the first board meeting would be on or about 
the last day or two of March of 2009, and it would be at the new stadium in Fort Lauderdale, which was going to be my first time to go see it in reality. And so I said I would come and then uh, attend a two-day board meeting. And I did not know that the board meeting a year or so earlier had ended in a vote of no confidence for the chairman, except that he won that vote. So uh, everybody was still intact. But I believe that's why there had not been another board meeting. So when I get to the board meeting, I'm introduced to the board. They're very warmly welcoming me, uh, at least into my face. And um, I then presented the same proposal that I had shown the interview committee. I said, if that had worked, why don't I at least present to the board something I had hoped they had all seen. I learned that they had not seen it and that basically the interview committee made the decision without the rest of the board. So I already know there's seven or eight guys who don't know me from Adam and just three or four people from the board committee. So I give the presentation, which leads to an interesting discussion where they are dubious about any capability I have to go get the ICC to give millions of dollars, or that I would be able to go out and get sponsors worth millions of dollars, or that I would put a plan together to do a worldwide tender to see about sharing or selling our commercial rights. Well, what, what commercial rights did we even have? I said, well, if their ICC is thinking that they're gonna make the United States a big time player, in world cricket, then they must be investing. We want to make sure that that investment has our stamp of approval. But what does it also mean? To me, it meant bringing in international cricket to the United States, which would be our rights, and we would get a piece of those commercial rights, uh, might make sponsors. I also made it clear that I thought we needed to do, I didn't want to call it the trickle-down effect, but I said, you know, sponsors want to know that the U.S. national team is actually somebody they should sponsor. And so if we can make some heroes and stars out of U.S. cricket, I believe then we can get sponsorship. And once we get sponsorships, we're going to professionalize our coaches and our athletes. I said, I would like to have a team of 30 to 50 of the best players in the United States under contract so that they're full-time athletes. And he said, I didn't think that should be too hard to do when we also knew that 19, 20, or 25 of them would always need to be on call as the next, next team up to go play wherever. Then I was astonished to find that, well, we don't even play the West Indies. You know, I mean, I, I, here we are in the United States and, and we weren't playing Jamaica or Trinidad, you know, because they're the West Indies and we couldn't even play those countries. Well, I'm just coming from the, those countries. I knew all their cricket administrators, so I promised that I would work out something with a country by country basis. And I learned that we would play in tournaments in places like Italy and Abu Dhabi and Nepal and Singapore and other places like that before we would play in Jamaica. <laughs> Barbados or Trinidad. So I, I was going to have to learn on the job how cricket was done and managed. So I'll just say that I thought things started well, but on the end of the first day of the board meeting, there was a threat of a fist fight between one board member and I'll just say another board member, highly positioned. And the whole rest of the board meeting turned back into a vote of no confidence. And this is my first day on the job. And I'm sitting here going, what the hell have I just gotten myself into? I drove home. I chose not to join the board for dinner because it ended so badly and I didn't want in any way to look like I knew that I didn't, knew who to side with. I just said, I'll, I'll see you gentlemen tomorrow morning. And I said, I hope by tomorrow morning things are back to being civil and we can actually get some things done and I get direction how you want me to proceed. The second day went fine. 
So I, I was a little happier, let's say. But let me just say that the rest of that weekend, there was some training camp going on with the U.S. national team. So we were also there to not just have a board meeting, but to meet players and watch players and train players. So I'm sitting in the grandstands and I would have basically 10 minute one on one conversations with each board member who wanted to come and tell me his private agenda, what his vision was for U.S. cricket and who I should trust and who I shouldn't trust on the board. Again, I, I, I had just been the COO of a World Cup. I understood politics. I understood uh, nationalities and ethnicities, uh, all the things that I ran into in my days at the Cricket World Cup. But I realized USA cricket was very ethnic in the sense that there were West Indians on the board. There were Indians on the board, South Asians on the board, Pakistanis and Indians, and then uh, one Brit. And so that was my board. And they absolutely created their own cliques and fiefdoms and what was the right thing to happen. And I realized that everybody came from a region. So instead of looking at it at USA cricket, it was being looked at from their regional perspective. So I realized that that was my, okay, this is the lot in life that I've accepted. I'm learning on the job and I'm going to be the best CEO I can be. What I did say to them was, having worked for the ICC and a very, very professional board of the Cricket World Cup, I said, I'm always accessible to you. I want to know what you would like to see USA Cricket become. I need to learn from you. I'll listen. But a CEO generally is given direction by the board and quarterly you meet with me and you tell me if you're happy with what we're doing as I report our progress or our lack and I update you on the finances of what we've got and our plans for the future, and you guys give me the go-ahead, the yes or the no, and then let me be for the next three months to make it happen. That never happened, Peter. I would wake up at six in the morning with 30 emails from various board members, most of them fighting with each other with me copy uh, of what we should do, what shouldn't we do, why was this being done, how could this person be selected on a team, who's going to be the coach, uh, you know, how are we paying the bills, and then I'd also read things that, about Lockerbie that I didn't think they knew I was copied on the email. But this is my first two or three months, and maybe it's time for another question, but that's how I got involved, and that's how I started basically on 1 April 2009. I was going to say, not just you were copied on some of those emails, I was copied on some of those emails. A lot of USA board members love, love copying random people just to kind of show how much uh, they love to hate each other. <laughs> and I mean, what do you think? You said, Don, Don, earlier, were you trying to imply that when you were working at FIFA World Cups and Cricket World Cups and with the Olympics, there were never any threatened fist fights at board meetings at any of these events? <laughs> well, not in my face and not certainly on my first day. Maybe people wanted to, but it was a little more tactful, let's say. That, that particular experience never left my mind because in the end, when I did depart, I had to go back and remind people of that first day and what I had been introduced and how I'd been introduced and kind of the one arm behind my back approach I had to the entire position. But, you know, I took it and I know only one way forward. You know, I was once told that Ferraris don't have a rear view mirror on the right side of the car because nobody's ever supposed to pass you on the right side and i felt like okay we're just going to move forward we don't look backwards we look forward and 
that was the approach. You discussed, not by name, a lot of board members there. I will ask you one by name, the one that everybody wants to know about. What was your first impression of Gladstone Dainty, and what was your relationship like with him? I think publicly my relationship was good. One of the first things he did was invite me up to D.C., where he was based, and uh, we had a day or two of communication of uh, his vision for the for it and what he could do to help. And of course, I got updated on the past and what had happened and who was on my board and why and what to watch out for, etc. And so he took me around his neighborhoods and showed me, uh, you know, cricket in the neighborhood and why he was involved and his Guyanese roots. And um, I felt like he was a supporter. I would say that. Probably in the end, he may have felt like I wasn't a supporter of his, and therefore he didn't support me in the end. But I will only have good things to say about him in the sense that um, he shared my vision for excellence on the cricket pitch for the U.S. national team. And he shared my vision of let's go find some money. Let me have a fresh approach at it. And so if I asked him to be on a phone call, if I asked him at an ICC meeting in London or in Singapore, where he traveled with me to have uh, meetings with individuals who I thought could support U.S. cricket, he was there. And if I asked him to meet and uh, help me present something to the ICC, he was there. So, uh, you know, I've heard all the stories about the past and the rumors. Uh, I will just tell you that he was the person that I could pick up the phone call daily and he would tell me not to worry about all those emails. But in the end, I can't say for sure what was happening behind the scenes. What I can say is that in public and to my face, it was always cordial and supportive. Today's edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, located at 5515 McKeever Road in Perlin, just five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288, a half hour south of downtown Houston. Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms, plus shower facilities after a day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. Aside from the main turf stadium ground, there is now a second ground at the facility open for use. For more information, call Call 713-534-2195, Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. One of the things I've always found fascinating about Gladstone Dainty and my interactions with him is, again, going in, I heard all the stories about him and all the rumors and whatnot. In person, he is a very charming, very erudite, very sophisticated guy. He's a very shrewd character, very shrewd operator, and I think... From the outside, a lot of people have this impression of the board leadership as being a bunch of dundering buffoons, and yet he he knows what he's doing. I mean, he he was a good politician, and he he's a very he's, he was an expert politician in in terms of pulling the strings and getting things to happen how he wanted them to happen with other board members. And I think that, for better or worse, is a lot of what he'll be remembered for in terms of how he kind of played certain people off of each other in order to accomplish various things. But I think the one thing, the misconception that some people have is that, well, he was just not suited for the job in terms of, oh, he he didn't know how to do things or he was a poor administrator. And that can be debated, but it's not because he was stupid. He was, he's a very smart guy. He knows exactly what he's doing. And if you meet him in person, I think people would be surprised 
that he can be he can be very self-effacing and he can he can be very disarming and it's not necessarily what you expect and then other things take hold over the course of your relationship and again all the politics and the internal politics and like you say the cliques and the factions and you know how votes are decided it's it's not necessarily what's best for the country or what's best for cricket or what's best for the board votes can be just straight down party lines with the cliques and the regional factions and all that and that's where things kind of fall apart in u.s cricket well i think the fact of the matter is you're absolutely right he's a shrewd businessman i always felt him to be um very, very smart in the way he approached what we thought we could do and what we thought we couldn't do. He gave me a long leash, I will say. He, he allowed me to attempt. So publicly and privately, I felt that I had his support. I think where things have to be looked at if you're going to do the history of USA cricket is before I became on board. There's a reason why that board had a, you know, a vote of no confidence before I ever got involved. And that has to go back to the election and the Constitution before me. And I'm not even sure what that year was. It must have been 2007, perhaps, maybe 2008, where there was a lot of rumor, and this is what the board members are telling me, is that many of the board members and even perhaps the chairman were wrongfully elected. Uh, we just ran through that in uh, our own presidential election. There's uh, all sorts of rumors, right? And you don't know what's true. But one of the things I did say right when I started was I was going to go make a town hall meeting with every region in cricket. I went ahead and decided that the first place I was going to go was the Bay Area because I also heard that's where the money was. <laughs> so, so I thought I would go introduce myself to the Bay Area. And of course, I was immediately criticized. Why are you going there first? You know, why not Dallas? Why not New York? I live in Florida. Why not Florida? I said, well, who's ready to write the first big check? I said, uh, the Bay Area uh, seems to have a lot of interest in growing the sport. There's more venues out there being built. I was being told about these cricket venues being built. I wanted to go see. So I went out and went with the Bay Area first. And it was there that I met a gentleman who apparently missed out on becoming the president of USA Cricket by one or two votes. And I was told the story, perhaps, of a mail-in voting that some people doubted its validity. So I'm being introduced by a man who believes he should be the U.S. president. This is, but for context, this is Ram Varadarajan was the man who, who finished second to Dainty in that election. That was his name, Ram Varadarajan, who himself was a multimillionaire, 100 millionaire businessman who, who founded a software tech company out in Silicon Valley area. But yeah, go on. Well, he told me that he would support me regard, regardless of where he was. And I asked him, what would your vision be? What If, if you were my president or my chairman right now, what, what would you want of me. And so we had that discussion and it seemed like we were on the same page. And I reported back. I said, I don't know what's true here, guys, but I've just learned about, uh, you know, well, I was told it was not true and not to worry about it and, and, and not to do any business with that individual. But I was getting pressure from the Bay Area that if they want me to int be introduced and if there's some sponsorships, and we all know the big companies in the Bay Area is where there's a lot of players coming out of those companies and volunteers and a lot of cricket interest there. And I was told that I should at least keep a good relationship. I believe I did keep a very good relationship. And I would always just say, look, you know, this is the direction I'm going. What do you think? I wanted a second opinion. I felt like, okay, this was a a political party almost that, you you know, if you go to the Senate, it's almost 49 to 51 kind of a, a vote. You, you want to know what the Republicans and the Democrats are thinking, right? So that's how I approached it. You know, this might be the opposition, but if you can get the opposition to side with you, things go smoother. 
And that's where I was. So I was keeping. And maybe that's where the relationship started to get on a trust issue. Like maybe the president didn't think I was supporting him, but it's not true. I just wanted to make sure that I was going to have a good base of people understanding my, my vision, because let's face what my vision was. I got, had gone and had worked with IMG, who of course started the IPL, and I had worked with them in the Cricket World Cup, so I was talking to companies like IMG, companies like Rushman's, who was also our chief operations consulting company for the Cricket World Cup. I was talking with broadcasters. I was talking with ESPN International. How are we going to get cricket, you know, both shown in the United States on people's TVs and games that would be in the United States? And I thought that the easiest thing we could do was try to get cricket to be played here by the international teams. Come to New York, come to the Bay Area, come to our little venue in Florida. I'll figure out a way to make the venues work. And so I was even having meetings in New York City about taking just a park and building a temporary stadium, 14, 20,000 seats. That's what I do. That's what I did for a living, to build stadiums. And I was making progress with New York City, who loved the idea of an India-Pakistan match in New York City. You know, who wouldn't? And so I was working on all of these kind of things. And then I determined, both with the president's go-ahead and others, to put out a tender where we would look to the best companies in the world, the best sports marketing, sports management companies in the world to come up with a scheme that would U.S. cricket on the map. And I put a month or two out there, every, every you know, quick info and everybody that you could possibly know in the world of sports I was communicating with. And we got, I don't know, 20 proposals back from some of the biggest names in sports. But the one that seemed very, very intriguing to me came from Cricket New Zealand. Out of the blue, Cricket New Zealand, who I had met their CEO at one of the ICC meetings, came to us and said, look, we share our cricket stadiums with uh, rugby stadiums and with other sports. And effectively, in the New Zealand winter, we can't play cricket, both because of weather and because it's the rugby season. What if our winter was the American summer? And New Zealand came and played our international matches in the United States, and we shared the revenue. Well, we went a lot farther than that. That proposal made it to the semifinals and, and was really one of the finals that we liked the most. And I brought Cricket New Zealand to the table to meet with our board. And we had many, many negotiations with them. But in the end, an Australian businessman, an Indian businessman, and Cricket New Zealand valued the commercial rights in 2009 or 10 of USA Cricket at $60 million. And the idea was that we would create a company that the commercial rights of USA Cricket valued at $60 million. Remember, this is a, an organization that never had more than a few hundred thousand dollars a year. So now we're valued at $60 million. And we have an Indian businessman who's ready to put up $6 million and own 10%, therefore, it's $60 million, ready to put up the $6 million. Uh, New Zealand was ready to commit matches with even teams like India, Australia, England being played, you know, at, at the right time from, let's just say, May to October in the season. And it all looked like it was moving in the right direction. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't moving in the right direction. And I felt that uh, the support and the work that I had brought to the table, which was going to create a T20 league, was going to have the United States national team, was going to get coaching assistance from 
Cricket New Zealand, and you'll remember the under-19 team, we brought in a great New Zealand bowler to become the coach of the under-19 team at the World Cup. Deepak Patel was the guy, yep. There you go. And we, we, we were moving in the right direction. We were going to get equipment. We were going to have field building and stadium building expertise. The United States was going to be able to send players to New Zealand academies so that our players would be sent. They were going to help us professionalize our team. It was very exciting to me. And it was what made me wake up in the morning again in cricket to get excited about all the things we were looking at. But when it came down to dotting the I's and the T's, I found that my board was negative to this opportunity. And while I'm getting, let's just say, positive input from the Bay Area and maybe some folks in New York and a few board members, I found that it just seemed like the deal was being hijacked. And that's all I can say. I, I, I don't know exactly how far we would have gone, but we were ready to sign documents. I had board approval to at least sign the first phase, and then we would worry about the second phase. And the first phase was, in fact, signed because we did get Coach Patel on the team. We did take the under-19 team to uh, New Zealand, and we came in early. We were moving in the absolute right direction. Uh, we also, with Cricket New Zealand's help, created the cup that we did do in Fort Lauderdale in 2010. Yep, Pearls Cup. That was the Sri Lanka and New Zealand played the first T20 internationals on American soil just after the T20 World Cup that was played in the West Indies that May. Well, how do you think that happened? You know, how in the world do we get the Pearl Corporation out of India to put a million dollars towards this tournament where we get ICC approval to play at Fort Lauderdale Stadium, where we get New Zealand for sure, and we couldn't announce who the second team was going to be until a powerful team was axed out of the T20 World Cup. We knew we were going to get New Zealand. In the end, we negotiated with Sri Lanka, who I felt was a great choice having just finishing second in the 07 World Cup. Very, very excited to have them come with their full strength team, both teams, full strength. And I told them, I'm going to treat you like it's a Super Bowl. We put them at the JW Marriott at Turnberry. We treated them with police outriders and buses, and we had a ball. The, the uh, Sri Lankan embassy threw a party for every Sri Lankan you could possibly think of, and the players showed up. New Zealand kind of did the same thing. We took both teams to see the Miami Marlins play baseball and even had batting practice where Marlins were taking some shots at hitting a cricket bat. And uh, some of the better New Zealand players and Sri Lankan players were, were taking batting practice. They loved the game. This was an amazing event that we put together. And then I said at the very last minute, the United States has to play. The original idea was we would be part of their training sessions and, and learn. But I, I made the call. And you know what? I didn't go to the West Indies Cricket Board. I just called Cricket Jamaica and said, I'll pay you $30,000 to come play in Fort Lauderdale against the United States in two matches. They didn't want the West Indies Cricket Board to say no, because technically we weren't supposed to play these guys. So, OK, Lockerbie uh, decided I was going to use my relationships from the World Cup and Jamaica came. And they came with everybody but Chris Gale, who's a good friend of mine, and I wanted him to come play, but he had in other obligations. So the United States plays Jamaica in two matches, and we get New Zealand and Sri Lanka. It was a wonderful experience. It was a great event, but we lost money. 
Well, and I want to ask you about that. So in terms of the losing money aspect, and I think this opened my eyes a bit to kind of the the greater challenges of the wider U.S. cricket culture at that time, because this was still early in my career covering U.S. cricket. I had been only covering USA for about a year at that point. I started covering U.S. cricket in May 2009. So the Pearls Cup happened almost exactly a year later. And I remember thinking, wow, this is going to be a very significant historic event. First ever T20 Internationals on U.S. soil. We've got two test nations coming. Again, as you said, New Zealand, as well as Sri Lanka, not just the 2007 World Cup runner-up, but they were also the runner-up in the 2009 T20 World Cup in England to Pakistan. That's right. So very elite team. And the series was originally scheduled for three matches. There were supposed to be matches on the Thursday, the Saturday, and the Sunday. That's right. And I got down there on the Thursday, having booked plane tickets, expecting there to be a match on the Thursday. And, and so we flew in on Thursday morning, having booked the tickets way ahead of time. And then a couple days earlier, I think it was quietly let out that the Thursday match was axed. The wording was some sort of creative wording about the series was being reshaped, but the reasons weren't exactly detailed. And then we found out later that it was because there were only 250 tickets sold for the first match. And it was just going to be a, a financial disaster if uh, that match had gone ahead because you'd have to pay out match payments and match fees and all sorts of other logistical costs. And tickets were selling for the weekend, but on the weekday itself, and I think in the end, there were, I think there was like 5,400 tickets for the Saturday and 30-something, 3,000-something for the Sunday. So it was about 8,500 tickets in all were sold for the two matches on the weekend. But Thursday, there was only 250 tickets sold, and that match had to be scrapped for financial reasons. And this has been a historical issue over the years when I've covered matches in Lauderhill. I remember, for example, in, in 2018, one of the things that put the nail in the coffin for the CPL, the Caribbean Premier League, coming to Florida, they came in 2016, had 10,000 people doubleheaders. It was a great right. event in 2016. 2017, the crowds went down a little bit because the previous year, even though there was a sellout crowd, just the fan amenities were really non-existent and it was sweltering heat, 90 degrees in South Florida in August with 90, 90% humidity is just unbearable. And they were running out of beer, they were running out of water, the people were passing out in the crowd. It was just not a very nice, hospitable experience for fans and that kind of turned a lot of people off. Fast forward to 2018, they had pushed the games into the evening to kind of adjust for the heat and make it a little bit more comfortable weather-wise and take advantage of the floodlights. But the crowds were down to about 2,000 people on the weekend for Trinidad and Tobago, which is the biggest draw card with Wade exactly. Bravo and all the Trinidad and Tobago players and Ali Khan, who at this point was an American <laughs> superstar. That's right. And then you get and and they and then they made the fatal error of instead of just scheduling weekend games on the Saturday and Sunday, they tried to put a Wednesday, a midweek game to satisfy a midweek crowd, again, at night, after work, but a midweek game with Andre Russell, one of the biggest T20 superstars in the world, and Steve Smith, yep. one of the highest-ranked batsmen in the world for Australia, who was in exile after the Sandpaper Gate incident. Right. Steve Smith and Andre Russell in Florida couldn't ask for a, a, two bigger draw cards, and they had 700 people in the crowd. You could hear the conversations on the field. They were echoing across the stadium in Lauderhill because there was it was so quiet, and it was just such a dismal and almost a funereal atmosphere at the ground and they've not come back since then because well, they came back they didn't come back right but i i attended maybe two years ago india west indies but it, but again india india like you said india new york india pakistan india anywhere will draw you're right. never going to struggle to get india the challenge in america has been and challenge in a lot of other countries in the world has been well yeah you're never going to struggle to sell out india in london and yeah. sydney in new york in florida how are you going to sell out USA versus 
Afghanistan or USA versus Ireland? How are you going to sell out New Zealand versus Sri Lanka or a CPL match? And that has been the struggle. And you experienced that firsthand in the Pearls Cup with that Thursday match had to be scrapped. So, so what, how did that open your eyes to some of the challenges that you were going to face well, over the next year or two? The, the, the fact of the matter is, what I realized was when you think that you're going to televise this event and you think ESPN is going to come right in and support it, in the end, we had to pay ESPN $200,000 to televise the event. That's not a good thing. No. But we went ahead and did it because, you know what? I believe the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times said the event would have over 100 million people watching on worldwide TV over the three days or two days. And I guess it did. We got some trickle-down monies from TV companies who then did pay some rights, and it helped a little bit. But in the end, we, we lose there. And the next thing you might know is that the stadium was never designed for TV. So we had to build the TV stand in the north and then create a TV camera platform on the east, excuse me, on the south. You know, so there were costs. We were ready to create VIP uh, areas, but no one wanted to pay the, whatever, $150 for an all-inclusive you know, VIP club. We, we ended up having a tent and had to, you know, almost give it away for people to, to use. So things I was used to in the West Indies, I would say what we thought would be an amazing West Indies culture to have everybody just come to, you know, to Fort Lauderdale and see it. Perhaps if it had been New Zealand, West Indies, that would have been great. And they so, came two years later in 2012, they did play New Zealand and that was a sellout crowd. They did have 15,000 people there for that. Yeah. So I, I think that was our problem. But again, remember, we didn't know who New Zealand was going to play until teams were knocked out. And then New Zealand, we had already talked to a few teams saying, hey, if you make the final semifinals, there's no way you can come play in our event. But if you're knocked out in the quarterfinals, we'd like you to consider playing. Well, Sri Lanka raised their hand and said, we're coming. And, and then, by the way, coming doesn't mean what you think, because then they wanted to make sure they got paid whatever New Zealand got paid. Well, New Zealand is our sponsor and our host in making this happen. And so, we had to, you know what? You learn very, very quickly about the economics of cricket, and they're difficult. They're difficult in a country like the United States. So, hey, we did it. We were the first event of its kind in the United States, I guess, since the OSA played Canada and New York in the 1840s. I was very, very proud of the event. In the end, I remain proud. And when I say that we lost money, our Indian investor bailed us out. So all bills were paid. By the way, let me tell you one other thing. I probably paid the most expensive police bill in the history of sports. And why is that? Because the whole business of Pakistan not being able to host international cricket was due to the fact that it was the Sri Lankan team that was attacked. Well, guess what that led to? Department of Defense, FBI, SBI in the state of Florida, and local police triple charged for our security because Sri Lanka was our team. And I, well, I remember they had commandos. They had like AK-47 commandos protecting them when they were at training sessions in Lauderhill. And they were very, very apprehensive to do any fan interactions until both games were over. After the second and final match was over on Sunday, then they kind of loosened up and they went into the crowd. There was a, several busloads of fans who came down from Washington, D.C., I remember, who were big Sri Lankan supporters. Half a million dollars that no other event would have ever paid for. Yeah. 
that, that we had to pay for just to kind of launch it. And my attitude was, okay, this is our first one. This is the learning experience. This is what we had to pay. But 100 million people watched on TV. Is, is ESPN not going to take advantage? Are they going to stiff us, you know, uh, another time? I don't think so. And I think that the deals that West Indies were able to put together down the road were less onerous. But we had the most onerous budgeting that we had to do. But again, our Indian investor came through. So again, I was ready we we had that debt, but I was getting it paid, and I felt like we had kicked off my vision, which was I promised international cricket in the United States, and I promised that the United States team would be in such an event, and I was very, very close to a $60 million deal with New Zealand and, and an Indian businessman, an Australian businessman, and I was very, very excited about where we were. Do you, having gone through that, though, that, that event and seeing the relative fan support, especially taking into context having to cancel that Thursday match, one of the things I find, again, fascinating, having made that comparison with the CPL and how their ticket sales went over the years, the U.S. cricket fan base. Again, these are cricket fans in America, not fans of American cricket. And even with those cricket fans in America are very parochial. I mean, I've been to NFL games in London. I went to see the Giants, been a Giants fan my whole life. And when they played at Twickenham a couple of years ago against the Rams, I went to that and have spoken to fans who've been to the games at Wembley as well. And it was fascinating to me because at that game, there might have been about 10,000 Giants fans who flew over from New York to go to Twickenham. The very, very few Rams fans. I don't think hardly anybody flew over from Los Angeles. But you still had 65, 70,000 people who were at that game in London who were just NFL fans. And the whole stadium is just full of people wearing Saints jerseys, Dolphins jerseys, Seahawks jerseys, Cardinals jerseys, Eagles jerseys, Cowboys jerseys. You know, I'm at a Giants game with all these Eagles and Cowboys fans wanting to talk to me because I've got an American accent and oh, they want to talk about football because they're from London and this and that. And I'm like, you're an Eagles fan. You're a Cowboys fan. I don't want to talk to you. Get away from me. <laughs> but like, they were just enthusiastic That's about the idea of the NFL being in London and selling the game out. And you don't have that. Peter, I was naive to that. I thought that just the fact that it was international cricket with world champion caliber players would make us have to rent grandstands to have 30,000 people there, okay? What I learned, and I should have known this, because there's stories in the West Indies. You know, again, I'm an avid fan of Cricket West Indies. I'm proud of what they've been able to do. I hope they have another World Cup. They deserve another World Cup. But let's just say that I know and heard stories that in Barbados, who was where I lived, I had a home in Barbados, got to know it so well that there was a story of the West Indies playing somebody. I'm not sure who they played, but because there was one or no Barbadians on the team, the Barbadian fans protested the game and it was, you know, nobody was in Kensington Oval because they weren't happy to see the West Indies. I will argue, Peter that in the 75 and 79 world championship teams where the World Cup was won by the West Indies, that the West Indies still didn't put the best team on the field. And that's because when you have all these countries, you could have two Trinis and two Jamaicans and maybe two Antiguans, but you're not going to have four. You know, even if it was, I don't think that Australia says we have too many guys from Perth on the team, but the West Indies is not a country. You know, it's a it's a region. And so those those countries, the fact that we had Jamaica, I thought with all the Jamaicans that live in the South Florida region, it would be full, absolutely full just to see Jamaica play and then stay stay for the second game. Because we played the U.S. game first 
Yep. So you come early, and then there's the, there's the match everybody wanted to see, the New Zealand-Sri Lanka game. Well, what I learned was the Guyanese and the Trinis and the Antigans and the, you know, Ketitians, et cetera, they weren't interested. They weren't interested to watch the U.S. play or the Jamaicans play. And that, that, that surprised me greatly. You know, but those were learning lessons. I was very ready to say, great, okay, this is what we now know. And perhaps the next game could have been a West Indies B team the next time I would do it. So that it was an all-star that maybe not the players that were on the senior team, but why not take the next 11? Look, these were lessons learned. I was ready to learn. I was ready to, to be educated. I thought the event went. In fact, there's videotape of both the Sri Lankan captains and the U.S. captains saying, don't let anybody else come play here. We'll come back. New Zealand will play anybody here the way we treated them. They said this was as good, if not better, than the way we were treated for a World Cup. So South Florida threw a party, and we did it really well. And I think, again, I was just excited about moving forward. But I was heavily criticized because there, you know, we were definitely going to lose some money on it. But I said, well, you got to invest in the sport. And, and look what we did. And, and all the board members love sitting in that VIP suite, drinking their rum and enjoying world-class cricket and seeing the U.S. play. It was the first of its kind. And I, I had high hopes. And I was already, I think there's a photo that has floated around the Internet. I was already meeting uh, with our friend at the IPL about IPL matches coming to the United States. The very famous photo of you with Lalit Modi, yes, from 2010. Where we denied that we were doing anything but just meeting one another for the first time. You know, he went to Duke and I was a Tar Heel. So we, we started off the conversation with our hatred for each other's team. But it led to that quiet conversation of absolutely the IPL wants to play in the United States. Start working on it. We'll help you. So that was something I had in the works. The idea, of course when they went to play in South Africa, made it even a, a bigger opportunity. Where where would they go next? And what was their off-season like? But cricket's very difficult. You know, you play your IPL for seven weeks and you go back to your national team, you know, and then the, the summer in England. And then it was difficult to keep adding, but we were looking at it. We were looking at it. And one of the things I was interested in was creating a venue in Las Vegas and trying to bring, you know, a small IPL type tournament just to Las Vegas because I thought it would bring the gambling community and uh, this the, the beautiful entertainment that Las Vegas could do and some night games in Vegas to me was a whole strategy that I had with Lalit Modi. We were in talks of that's where we would do it. Betting in cricket has been a controversial topic in cricket over the years. You may remember I wrote an article in 2010 on Dream Cricket, five ways to make cricket appeal to Americans. And one of my five things was really promoting gambling and the gambling aspects of cricket. And I've, I've always been somebody who's written a lot of coverage extensively about the match fixers and the people who have been corrupt and how wrong and bad that is. But I also believe, and I don't think it's hypocritical to do this, I also believe strongly that the sports gambling in cricket should be promoted in a legal way. The problem with a lot of the match fixing episodes is that it happens in, in territories where Gambling is illegal and there's underground black market betting, but if it's regulated in a proper way, like it is in the U.S. sports markets, it can be an, a very effective mechanism. You can see why I was thinking Vegas. You can yeah. see why I was thinking out of the box. Look at what our sports are now doing in 2021. In America, it's yeah. incredible the gambling transformation that's happened with the opening of have our time. And, yeah. and, you know, by the way, I had come I had come out of being heavily involved with the XFL in 2021, 2020, 2021, 
where we made uh, a deal with the bookies in Vegas and gambling was legal for XFL games. And so I knew, I knew what that meant. You know, this was one of my strategies. You know, I look at English football, I look at MLS, who I am a beloved consultant with MLS programs and teams, but I started day one in 1996. I was telling MLS that if you look at what works in British, Italian, German, French football, Spanish football, you'll find that it's gambling that works. And that the fact that all the games are at the same time on a Sunday is because, hey, you, you, all the gambling needs to take place at the same time. Otherwise, you you know, maybe you don't play your players if you knew that the other team that you're having to be ahead of in the table had a draw or had a loss. So that's why they play. That's what I was told and that's what I learned. And I also learned the fact that there's a larger line at Ladbrokes at, say, an Arsenal game than there is a beer line or a hot dog line or, a, you know, a sausage line. Why? Because the people in the state and my my recommendation to MLS in its very first year was allow gambling, but only at the stadium. Yeah. You know, make people come and then they can gamble there. So I've been a fan of that. And this is where I was thinking, you know, I would look at that opportunity in a Vegas thing. I didn't have ICC commitment to that. But I'm just saying that if you go to every website in cricket, all you see is betting betting advertisements. So, you know, I, I, I again, I, I, I wasn't blind. You know, again, match fixing is the worst. You know, it, it's the absolute worst. Cheating in sport in any kind is the worst. And so we'll deal with that. But my hope was, and my conversation with Lalit, it can now be said, was if we want to do multiple cities, great. But we could do a temporary venue like I have built before for Olympic Games and put it in the desert. And you could have all the teams come to Vegas and everybody's basically on holiday and they play a few games. And wow, you know, even if you wanted to call it a week of preseason before everybody went home. And we were very excited about pursuing that. Well, from near fistfights in the USA Cricket Association boardroom to hatching plans with Lilith Modi to have IPL matches in Las Vegas, part two had plenty of twists and turns. And next week, we will have part three, the final part of the Don Lockerbie trilogy on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. I just want to remind everybody to like, subscribe, share the podcast on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Anchor FM. Until next time, I'm Peter Delapena. God bless America, and God bless American cricket. Cricket.